few quick reminders for you. First, to me, for other members of this church, to be able to find ways to minister to them regularly in the context of the church. If you have not joined a church, uh, we are so glad that you have come to be with us today. Uh, we would love to talk to you about church membership. We regularly have membership classes here at our church. Uh, our pastoral assistants are helping us teach those right now. Dan Mason's right over there in the corner. Dan, raise your hand. If you have questions about when the next class is, you go speak to Dan afterwards. We'd love to talk to you about church membership and for you to go to one of those classes. It doesn't make you a member, but it is one of the ways that you can inquire about membership here at Christ Church Westchester. For everyone else, uh, we are giving away copies of Gentle and Lowly after the service. Uh, we have about 150 free copies that are going to be on the table over by the Connection Center. Uh, if you already have the book, don't take a copy. Uh, if you go and take one copy, don't take a second copy. If you pick up a stack of copies, put that stack down and only take one. Uh, we would love for you to, to have a copy. Uh, we have enough for every member and I think every person here to have one. But if you think, hey, one per household is sufficient for us, that would help us because the more that we have, the more that we can give away. So if you're saying, hey, I really need mine so I can mark it up and this person can mark up their own copy. That's great. I understand how that is. I like to protect my books from my wife as well. She ends up taking them anyways. But if you need your own copy, take one. But if you're willing to share one, uh, please do that. The more that we have, the more that we're able to give to other people. But we want you to go get one. Uh, they were given to us as a gift. We have enough for every single person here. If you don't know much about that book, that's great. Read it and you'll learn. But one of the uh, great blessings of that book is it's just encouraging us that Jesus Christ is the mighty friend of sinners and he invites us into rest. In so many ways, it's a meditation on Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. It's an excellent read. If you're not a fast reader, one of the things that I love to do when I'm reading books like that is to read it during my devotional time. And you can just set an arbitrary page limit. I'm going to read five pages a day and then I'm going to close it. And you would be surprised how many books like that you would read over the course of the year. But just pull that into your devotional time and open some of the scriptures that uh, Dane is citing in there. It is a book that will encourage and minister to your soul. So that's after the service. If you're a member, go get a directory. We want you to have one of those so that you can pray for members of our church. Everyone else, please go get a copy of Gentle and Lowly. They're going to be by the Connection Center there. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Our time together will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Ecclesiastes, we're going to be in chapter 7 in just a few moments. As you're turning there, one of the things I'd like to do uh, especially is explain why I broke the text the way that I did. And if you're the type of person who likes to write in your Bible, I'm just going to have you make two notes. By chapter 7, verse 23, write 8, 17. Chapter 8, verse 17. And if you look at the end of uh, verse 23 and 24, you're going to see this question here, which kind of gives us the title for the sermon today. Who can find it out? Now, if you drop all the way to the end of our passage today, chapter 8, verse 17, right beside that, you could write chapter 7, verse 23. And one of the things that you will see in that verse is repeated three times, cannot find it out, not find it, cannot find it out. So from the beginning of our passage to the end of our passage, the preacher is trying to, to answer this question, and he ends up telling us that something is elusive, We'll see that as we read today, and Lord willing, as, as we hear the word preached. Let's turn our attention to Ecclesiastes 
chapter 7, we're going to begin reading in verse 23. The preacher writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as of Jesus Christ himself. We're here speaking to us today. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes." Who is like the wise? Now, once again, if you'd like to write in your Bible, you'll notice in verse 23 of chapter 7, there's wisdom. Chapter one, ver- uh, 8, verse 1, there's wisdom. Chapter 8, verse 17, there's wisdom. All of those references are important for you. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command... Because of God's oath to him, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he, uh, whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink. And be joyful, for this will go well with him in all his toil through all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to seek the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. 
Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us now and that you, in your mercy, would give us wisdom. That is what we need. That is what we long for, the wisdom that comes from above. Lord, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from above, and right now we seek that wisdom, wisdom that points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of God as it has been decisively revealed in the word of God. And we ask all of this in the name of the one true and living God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. The great 20th century theologian, the dread pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride, famously points out to Princess Buttercup, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. That statement is true and useful for adjusting our expectations in life, but it leaves us empty-handed when life takes a turn that we don't expect. And we, ourselves, or the loved ones that we care about, suffer and die. All across Ecclesiastes, the preacher is seeking wisdom. The preacher is telling us that he is on a pursuit. And what we've seen week after week is that everything and everyone that we love will be lost. Every single one of us will lose everything that we have and everyone that we love. And this forces the preacher to make statements like, life is vanity. He tells us that we don't know. We really don't know what comes next, no matter how carefully we prepare for it. And it seems constantly throughout the book that pain and death are on the rise. They're always lurking in the shadow of his words, waiting to pounce upon us, whether we are ready or not for them. Our lives are filled with freak accidents, cancer, and the steady decay of time. And as we heard last Sunday evening, things that are lamentable and broken. Stories of sadness and pain come at us from everywhere in our lives. From our news cycles, to our TV shows, to the movies that we watch, to the social media feeds that we troll. Because pain and death seem to sell even better than sex. Under the barrage of this type of tragedy in the book of Ecclesiastes, hope seems like a flimsy comfort. At best, it seems like a hole in the ground that you can just go stick your head into and hide like an ostrich. Constantly, we're asking ourselves as we read Ecclesiastes, is it real? Is God really there? Does he hear what I say Or is my voice just echoing in the room? Am I just fooling myself so that I can cope with life? In Ecclesiastes, the preacher confronts the faithful and the faith suspicious when he says that we don't know, really know, what comes next. But the preacher also says that if we will simply quiet ourselves and really listen in the stillness, 
and silence ourselves, then we will hear the wisdom of God speaking to us from the shining face. Notice first the limitations of wisdom. Look again in chapter 7, verse 23. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. From the beginning of Ecclesiastes, the preacher is on a quest, a quest to answer a question for himself, all the way from chapter one, verse three. How do I gain? How do I profit? How do I benefit in this life under the sun? That's how he speaks of the way that we live our life this side of eternity. We see in Ecclesiastes that he has sought for it everywhere. He has sought knowledge. He has sought self-indulgence. He has sought meaning in work, and he has sought it in wisdom. In fact, the preacher tried to use wisdom to test everything he saw in the world and everything that he experienced in this life, but it just left him bewildered and confused when he couldn't tie up all of the loose ends and give the one answer to solve all of life's problems, 723, All this referring immediately to verses 1 through 22 of chapter 7, but in so many ways to everything from chapter 1, verse 1 to now. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But notice the distance. It was far from me. That which has been is far off. And now notice the depth. Deep. Very deep. Who can find it out like a bottomless ocean that he can never get to the bottom of? The confession of the preacher in chapter 7, verses 23 and 24 has a devastating finality to it for us as readers, especially when we consider all of the eagerness of the preacher as he has been pursuing this wisdom for the last seven chapters. According to verse 25, he has been searching for it. He has been seeking it. Like Gollum in the ring, it has been his all-consuming passion. His mind is bent on it at all times. But according to verse 26, his pursuit of wisdom has failed to yield wisdom. And all he has found is something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. When we read Ecclesiastes against the backdrop of Proverbs, as we have done today in our corporate scripture readings, we see that the preacher's image is meant to communicate the inaccessibility of wisdom, not the superiority of men or the inferiority of wisdom. In Proverbs, lady wisdom is hard to find. 
which is why we get all the way to the end of Proverbs and we see the Proverbs 31 woman and in verse 10 it says, an excellent wife, who can find? Answer, there is nobody like this. Men, you will not find the Proverbs 31 woman. She doesn't exist. We are to strive after her, to be her. All people are called to find wisdom, but she is elusive and hard to find. But Lady Folly in the book of Proverbs is out and about. She's everywhere present. She's loud. She's boisterous. She's accessible. And she is confusing people who are going straight on their ways, which is why we see things like this in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 13. The woman Folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. One of the most useful things that you could do this afternoon is go home and read Proverbs chapter 9. And one of the things you'll see is not only the verses that we just read, but you will see Lady Wisdom calling out. And the voice of wisdom and the voice of folly sounds so much alike in Proverbs chapter 9. Lady Wisdom is calling out. And her call is not dissimilar to Lady Folly, but Lady Folly is leading people astray with something that sounds like wisdom. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 26 through 28, the preacher is speaking of these two ways of wisdom. And ironically, though he has pursued wisdom, all he has found is folly, a wisdom that cannot explain why gangsters drive sports cars and good people go hungry and children die when they're young, a wisdom that can't tell us how to have meaning in work or pleasure in life. A wisdom that has no ability to interpret the times or the seasons of life and history and does not explain why things are the way that they are or how anybody this side of eternity can always set themselves in a position and for a posture of gaining and benefiting and profiting in this life. Why? Because the preacher's empirical investigation can only take you so far. He's observed everything. He's experienced everything. He reminds us that as the king, he, above all people, should be the one who has the time and the resources and the opportunities to experience and bottom out all of the things that he would like to in life. But it can only take him so far. He can observe it. He can experience it. He can see it. But he can't explain it. He can tell you what? but he cannot tell you why. Brothers and sisters, we know that to be true in our own lives. So many people smarter than all of us in this room, they can observe far more than we'll ever have the opportunity to see this side of eternity on earth and in the galaxy all the way beyond Pluto. They can see the what, but they cannot tell you the why. And the preacher has been on that type of pursuit seeking meaning, seeking purpose, seeking gain, bottoming it all out. And all he has found is folly. All the preacher knows is that wisdom, his epistemology of investigation, can never achieve the kind of control over life and destiny that he has been seeking. 
All it can do is help you know a little bit more about how to live well and a little bit more about how to die well. And it can teach you some things truly, but it can't teach you anything completely. Look in chapter 8, verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. The point that the preacher makes is that we are hard-pressed to find even one human being who actually knows the way of wisdom. And even in the long shot, that we might find somebody who's wise enough to be able to try to see the patterns and interpret things, they are actually a sinner who is seized by folly. Look at chapter 7, verse 29. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes... What type of schemes? Just back up earlier in the passage. Sinful schemes. Brothers and sisters, we are so glad that you're here, but one of the messages that you will regularly hear from this church is that you are a sinner. You are a sinner who has sinned against a holy God. Your sin has separated you from God. Your sin has not only separated you from God, your sin has prevented you from being able to make your way through the world wisely. No matter how successful you are, no matter how much money you earn this side of eternity, no matter how many degrees you accumulate for yourself or how many books you read or how much intelligence and facts that you amass for yourself, you are somebody who does not know how to make your way through the world. Like the preacher, you can see and you can begin to interpret patterns, but you will never be able to explain the why because of your sinfulness. Your sin has separated you from God. Your sin has prevented you from being able to make your way through the world, and your sin will send you to hell. Your sin is not something to play with. So often we have such a low view of sin. So often... We think of our sin as just something that we can coddle and that we can manage. And one of the things that we learn, if we're honest, is that you can't coddle it and no one's ever been able to manage it. It grows and it festers. It builds and it derails. It leads us places that we would never go in our right minds. And it takes us down paths that will destroy us and the very people that we profess to love. That's not a new message. The preacher observed that in the book of Ecclesiastes. That the wisest person was still a sinner seized by folly. That the smartest person was incapable of making their way through the world because of their sin. That the richest, most affluent, most intelligent, most experienced person is devastated by the consequences of sin. And we're here to tell you that that message hasn't changed. It's true of your life this morning. That your sin is wreaking havoc on your life. And it is preventing you from seeing things clearly, which is why we need the book of Ecclesiastes. The limits of wisdom. Notice, second, the face of wisdom. Look in chapter 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. 
The preacher has been looking out for profit. He's been looking out for gain. He's been looking out for benefit. And he thought that he could attain those things by a form of wisdom, this empirical investigation where he would go on these pursuits. He's looking for structure. He's looking for order. He's looking for meaning in all areas of life. But it has evaded him. It has been elusive throughout the entire book. Over and over again throughout the book, he bottoms it out. He cannot find it, a phrase that is repeated over and over again in our passage. Chapter 7, verse 24, who can find it out? Chapter 7, verse 28, but I have not found it. Chapter 8, verse 17, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Even though he sees, chapter 8, verse 6, that there is a time and a way for everything, reminding us of that famous passage in chapter 3. He knows, chapter 8, verse 17, that he can't make sense of it all, that no one can make sense of it all, and anyone who pretends like they can make sense of it all is simply lying to everybody else. Look at the end of chapter 8, verse 17. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So he asks, verse 1, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? The wisest man in all the world, the one who has learned more than other people and has more than other people and has experienced more than other people and has worked more than other people and enjoyed more than other people asks, who is like the wise? All of the things that we think, if I could do that, I would be wise. And he comes on the other side of all of that and says, I've experienced all of that. I've had all of that. I have possessed all of that. Who is like the wise person? Because all of his investigation has taught him at least one thing, that there is a wisdom that is greater than the wisdom that he possesses. And he assumes that if there was some way to access that wisdom, he would finally be able to make sense of it all, and he would finally be able to profit and gain and benefit under the sun. And he says that the person who could access that wisdom would be a different kind of person. And their wisdom would, verse 1, make his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Now, for careful Bible readers, the preacher's words evoke another shining face earlier in Scripture. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 34. The preacher's words evoke another shining face in Scripture, the shining face of Moses in Exodus chapter 34. I think I said Deuteronomy. I meant Exodus. It's good for you to find both of them. They're both biblical. Deuteronomy 34, verse 29. Exodus 34. You know, we're going to call a mulligan on the whole service today. <laughs> we'll just come back in a few hours, take lunch break, and we'll try again. So, <laughs> Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone 
and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with them. Moses' face shone because he had been in the presence of God. He had been talking with God, and he had been talking with God in such a way that his face was actually reflecting the glory of God. The preacher is saying, if someone could access that wisdom, If someone could have access to that type of wisdom, his face would shine just like that, like the face of Moses. And if someone could look at life with that type of wisdom, they would have a wisdom that comes directly from the presence of God. His face would shine. The hardness of his face would go away. He would know how to make his way through the world because he would finally be like the wise. Friends, isn't that what we all want? We want to be like the wise. We want to know how to make our way through the world. We want to be able to see all of the scenarios that are facing us and the different situations that are going to come before us, and we want to know exactly what to do, the one right thing in every single moment. We want to know when to speak. We want to know how it will all turn out for us if we make all of the right decisions. And we want to know how it will turn out for all of our friends. We want to control all of those things because we are so terribly afraid of messing everything up. We would love to look at life with this type of wisdom, wisdom that comes from the direct presence of God so that we could finally live in an unfrustrated way. Because if we are honest with one another, all of us are frustrated with our lives. Nothing is working out the way that we thought it was going to work out at least in every single way. Nothing is happening the way that it seems that it should, at least all of the time. And so many times it seems that when we do the right thing and we were convinced that was the right thing to do, all of the wrong things happen afterwards. And so we are frustrated and annoyed, enraged and depressed and anxious and angry with one another, and with God. The preacher wants us to see that if we could access that wisdom, we would finally know how to make our way through the world. We would love to look at the world with that type of wisdom. So the preacher begins to suggest ways that we might acquire that type of wisdom. Look in chapter 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. He's referring to the king. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to the king, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lie heavy on him. He says, maybe if you keep all of the right rules, then you will finally acquire all of the right wisdom. And isn't that how so many of us live right now and want to live our lives? If I just know all of the right things, 
then I can finally do all of the right things. And if I do all of the right things, then I can be confident, 100% confident, then it will all finally work out all of the right ways. But as the preacher begins to reflect on this, he gives us some very practical advice when it comes to all of the rules. Obey the king's decree, that's wisdom. Don't storm out of the king's presence, that's one way to get beheaded. Don't question the king, who can challenge the king in any particular moment. Because the king is in charge and God has ordained that he would be in charge. The king, after all, seems to be the one who's actually in control of life. He rules over all the people. He has access to all of the information. He can use all of the resources at his own disposal. But then he goes on to tell us that there are actually some things that not even the king can can control for those who obey all of the right rules. Look in chapter 8, verse 7. For he does not know what is to be, For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Not even the king knows how everything will turn out. He may know a lot. He probably knows more than you, but he does not know everything, and neither do you. Not even the king can restrain people's anger. He definitely has the power to imprison them, but he cannot retain their spirit, and neither can you. Not even the king has power over death. Yes, he certainly has the power to sentence them to death, but not, not even the king has the power to undo death, and neither do you. Not even the king can enforce peace. He can create laws, and he can decree, but he cannot create new hearts, and neither can you which is why people give themselves to wickedness, the very wickedness that they know that will destroy them. And even if the king was all-powerful and he finally knew everything, he knew how it would all work out and he had the power to enforce how everything would work out, even then he would corrupt it. And so would you. When man had power over man to his own hurt, like Boromir with the one ring, you would desire to do what is right with it. And you would be the one who would wield the power of the one ring rightly to save all of the people. But it would eat you alive until you not only turned on yourself, but the very people that you had promised to protect. And you know this to be true, which is why all of the time when you get frustrated, you say, if I were king for a day, I'd wipe out all those people that annoy me right now. The preacher tells us that if we live under the, we like to live under the delusion that if we obey all of the right rules or if we were the right type of king, that we would finally be in control. Brothers and sisters, what the book of Ecclesiastes is preaching to us is that you're not in control and you'll never be able to obey all the right rules because there aren't enough rules to make it all work out all of the right ways. It's not possible to obey them or know all, and there's this greater power, a greater power than the king that can control all. Why is it this way? The preacher goes on to tell us in chapter 8, verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out from the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. 
because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, because there's not immediate justice. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well for those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. He tells us the wicked live longer, but I know that that's not the right thing. But even though it's not the right thing, the wicked end up living longer. And why is that? Because they don't fear God. We fear loss. We fear consequence. But we're sinners who don't fear God. And in the strange providence of God, verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said all of this is vanity. The preacher has learned that everything in life is backwards, that obeying the rules don't work, that knowing all the information doesn't work, that doing all the right things doesn't work, that being associated with the right type of power structures doesn't work. The wicked live, the righteous die, the evil prosper, the good perish, the lawless flourish, and the lawful flounder, and never achieve the shining face. So he says, verse 15, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. The preacher says, if this is all that there is, this is the best that we can do. Eat and drink and be joyful. But there's a problem. God has written eternity in our hearts. He's made us yearn for a wisdom that is greater than the wisdom that the preacher possesses, to know how to make sense of everything in this life, to make man's face shine. So God sent a shining face from beyond the sun. The preacher's words point us backwards, the shining face of Moses, but they also point us forward. Now take your Bible, turn to Matthew 17, not Deuteronomy 34. Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, we find these words. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise. And have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is longing to know the wisdom that makes someone's face shine. But what he sees is that there is no one with the shining face. 
that every person on planet earth fell short of actual wisdom. So God, in his great mercy, sent someone who was wisdom incarnate. His face did not always shine. He was born by a virgin in a cattle stall, but he grew up following all of God's law. He grew in wisdom and in favor and in stature with God and with man. And in his life, he obeyed completely. He obeyed rightly. He lived the life that no one has ever lived, and he was able to see how to make his way through the world, doing something for us that we can never do for ourselves. Be obedient to all of the commands and all of the rules. And this same one with the shining face had to die. He tells them, do not tell them of the vision until he is raised from the dead, which presupposes that if he is going to rise from the dead, he had to die first. And why did he die? He died as a substitute for your sins and for mine. Brothers and sisters, sinners that we are, the Savior, the one with the shining face came, and he obeyed where we could never obey and he was wisdom incarnate. The apostle Paul tells us, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To walk in the way of wisdom is to follow in the way of Christ. And the way of Christ is one of repentance and faith, one of belief and hope in his substitutionary work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Do you want to know wisdom? You won't find it in books except this one. Do you want to know wisdom? You won't find it in any life except in Jesus. The gospels are constantly pointing us back to Jesus because Jesus alone is the one who walked in the way of wisdom and they invite us to believe in the one who is wisdom incarnate. If you would just repent of your sins and believe in the gospel and trust in Christ crucified, it is a simple and offensive message that we preach relentlessly because it is the only way of salvation for those who believe. And here is why Jesus is so much better. Moses had to veil his face because his glory dimmed. But Jesus never had to veil his face and his glory will never dim. Jesus rules and he reigns. He is risen still and he lives and he is interceding for his people. Brothers and sisters looking to make your way through the world, believers in Christ, Turn yourself to Christ afresh. Learn from the way of Christ. And one of the best ways that we can do that is to give ourselves to the Gospels, reading and rereading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and learning from the way of Christ. And if you are not a Christian here today, we are here to tell you that your life will continue to bottom out and will never be able to find wisdom unless you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And if you don't know what that means or how to do that, we would love to open the Bible with you and tell you the good news of the gospel and what repentance is. You can find me after the service. I'll be standing at the tunnel. You can speak to any member here in this church. They'd love to speak with you. But the gospel message is very simple. You are a sinner. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Life is pain. Anyone who says something else is selling something differently. True hope is hard won. And the struggle to hang on, the preacher tells us, is often more that we can bear until we look to the shining face of Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners, God incarnate, wisdom in the flesh, as we sang, 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ and that he entered this world to be obedient where we never could and when we wouldn't and to die the death we deserve to die on the cross. We ask now that we would turn our eyes afresh upon him and that you would help us to behold the wisdom of God in the Son of God, God incarnate. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.